Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Back to Jerusalem, and after they returned to Jerusalem, God sent prophets to speak to them during that time. The whole return to Jerusalem described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We covered those a few months ago. So Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. And as Zechariah returns to Jerusalem, he finds that things are not going very well. The, the temple that the God's people were commanded to rebuild was not finished, and it was still lying in ruins. And all the promises about how Israel would be restored to their former glory were not happening. And the moral transformation that they were expecting in the people of God was not happening. And the people were very discouraged at the time that Zechariah comes on the scene. And a lot of them are probably realizing that the whole reason we're in this difficult situation is because of our own guilt. That is, God's people had broken their covenant obligations and were under the anger, condemnation, and curses of God. That's the situation that God's people are in when Zechariah comes onto the scene. But the good news is that God, when his people are feeling guilty and overwhelmed and discouraged. God always enters in and provides the words of encouragement. And that's what God sent Zechariah to do, to build up, encourage his people to relieve their guilt. And in this book, in chapter 3 in particular, there are words of hope for your guilt as well. And you're going to see that as we go through this chapter. So quick overview of Zechariah. Um, we believe the book written by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah was born in Babylon. He's a, a priest uh, for God's people. That's what he does for a living. He's um, preaching to God's people around 520 to 518 BC, about five centuries before the coming of Christ. Um, significant events in Zechariah are eight strange visions. <laughs> So if you haven't read Zechariah, you might be surprised when you do read it. It is kind of a bizarre book. Um, however, Zechariah is quoted frequently in the New Testament, about 67 times, 67 times. The New Testament alludes to Zechariah. Most often that occurs in the book of Revelation. So when you read Zechariah, you'll see a lot of things that you see in Revelation, uh, very similar books. So there are eight visions. The one we're going to read Today is the fourth vision. Uh, themes, rebuilding the temple, God's sovereignty, and God's encouragement to his people, particularly when they're overwhelmed with guilt. So, um, Zechariah chapter 3. That's the chapter we're going to read. If you want to stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able. If not, you can remain seated. Just ten verses here in Zechariah 3. Again, this is the fourth vision, so already three visions have appeared to the prophet, and here's what happens in this fourth vision. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing, was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. 
And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. God, would you please give us understanding now by your spirit as we explore this passage, your word given to us. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, what does this teach us about guilt and the way we we deal with guilt? We're going to look at three things here, and the first is this, what Satan does. What Satan does with regard to our guilt. We'll see here in verse 1 that there are three main players at work. There is this man named Joshua, the high priest. So be clear here, this is not the Joshua connected with the battle of Jericho. This is not the Joshua who served as Moses' apprentice. This is a man who lived many centuries later, and he serves as high priest. That is, he represents the people before God in the temple. He's a full-time religious worker, we might say, as high priest. That's Joshua. Uh, We also see that there is an angel here in in this vision, The angel of the Lord, mentioned in verse 1. Notice, however, in verse 2, how it indicates that it is the Lord who said to Satan. So the angel of the Lord is described in verse 1, but it is the Lord who is speaking in verse 2. There seems to be a connection between the angel of the Lord and the Lord. In other words, the angel of the Lord is the Lord. We have God, but we also have an angel angel that is distinct from God, but this angel is also the Lord. And so what we're seeing here is a a peek into the doctrine of the Trinity, the distinction between the Father and the Son. I believe this angel of the Lord is what is called a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus before he was born uh, speaking in this passage. So we have a divine angel, a divine figure called an angel uh, also on the scene. And then the third major player is, of course, Satan. And Satan is mentioned in verse 1 and 2. Now, what is it that Satan does? What is the task that is described here? And what we see at the end of verse 1 is that Satan is standing at the right hand of Joshua to accuse him. What Satan wants to do is bring a charge against Joshua. He's standing there waiting for the opportunity. And we see that this is something that Satan 
loves to do. We might have a lot of ideas in our head about what Satan does and how he operates. What this is telling us is that one of the things that Satan does most effectively is he harasses the people of God. He accuses. He, he loves to whisper in your ear and make you feel guilty. He loves to heap shame upon you to remind you of all the wrong things that you have done and to bring you down into hopelessness. And we see this again even in Revelation chapter 12 very clearly ascribing this activity to Satan. It says the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, recalling Genesis chapter 3, who is called the devil and Satan. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan not only likes to accuse us, he likes to do it day and night. He likes to do it relentlessly and constantly. Now, what we see here is that we have to acknowledge that in Joshua's case, he is guilty. He's guilty as charged because you notice that at the end of verse 3, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And that word for filthy is a word that I really can't repeat <laughs> in church because it deals with the most vile thing that you can imagine. And that's what this passage is telling us is covering Joshua. And notice as Satan is accusing him. Joshua offers no defense. He doesn't say, yeah, yeah, but, but Satan, but I didn't mean it, but somebody else made me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't offer any defense because Joshua knows that he's guilty. So Satan enters the scene. He finds someone who is a sinner, and he brings accusation. Now, what here is the difference, you know, because the Holy Spirit actually does something similar, right? I mean, the Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. And so there is a time when it is right to feel guilty. I mean, when you have sinned against God and you're unrepentant and you are defiant and you feel guilty about it, that's a good thing. That's a work of the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sin. When someone never feels guilty, that's evidence that the Spirit of God is not at work. So the Spirit comes to us and reveals to us our sin, but here's what the, the Spirit also does. The Spirit also points us to relief. The Spirit also points us to Jesus as the one who can relieve us of our guilt. That's something that Satan never does. That's the difference between the work of the Spirit and Satan. Satan accuses but never offers hope, never offers any relief. What Satan does is, is he whispers in your ear about all your failings. He says, you, you lousy Christian, you lost your temper again. And you said you would never do that again. You didn't read your Bible again. Your prayer life is awful. You had an opportunity to share your faith, and you didn't. You cowered. You didn't speak up. You gossiped again. You've been saying for years that you wouldn't do that, but out of your mouth came that slanderous comment. You went to that website again that you shouldn't have gone to. You are a filthy person. That's what Satan wants you to believe. That's what he's going to whisper in your ear. That's the voice that you hear. How can you be a Christian? 
How can you think that God would love you? How can you think that you would ever go, and go to heaven with all the things you've done and all the thoughts that you've thought? And that's where it ends with Satan. He brings these accusations, and there's absolutely no hope. That's what's going on here. Satan is accusing Joshua when he's guilty. But, you know, there are even other times when Satan accuses us, and that is when we're not guilty. He'll even do that. And that shouldn't surprise us, because in John chapter 8, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies. He's a liar, he will tell you that you're guilty of things that you're not guilty of. And this happens often with Christians who have particularly sensitive consciences. Sometimes they're overwhelmed with guilt about things that they really have no reason to be guilty about. Here's what Satan will do sometimes. Satan will talk to people who are victims of verbal, sexual, physical abuse and try to convince them that it was their fault and make him feel guilty about that. What a lie that is. That's what Satan does, he accuses. He'll, he'll talk to parents and he'll make them feel guilty about decisions that their children have made. Not anything that the parent did, but something that a, the child did freely of his or her own volition and Satan will cause the parent to feel guilty. Satan will make you feel guilty because you can't keep up with self-imposed rules or rules that other people maybe have put upon you about uh, an exercise regimen or a diet or certain grades that you might want to get in, in school. And because of certain physical, intellectual li liabilities, maybe you can't do it, but you feel guilty about it because Satan is whispering into your ear, telling you you're filthy. This is what Satan does. There's a big difference, friends, between feeling guilty and being guilty. And it's important for us to try to distinguish the difference. So how can we do that? Well, if you're feeling guilty, overwhelmed with guilt about something, I, I would say here, ask three questions. First of all, are you responsible for that thing you're feeling guilty about? Are you responsible? If, if not, if you didn't do this, if you're not responsible for it, you have no reason to feel guilty. But if you did do the thing, then you would want to ask a second question, which is this. Is this thing you're feeling guilty about something that the Bible speaks against? Or is it something that you haven't done that the Bible says you should do? You might say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I did that. If the answer to that is no, no, this thing I'm feeling guilty about is not even talked about in the Bible, well, you don't need to feel guilty about that. But if the answer is yes, then the next thing to do is to ask yourself, have I confessed this sin to God and laid it at the foot of the cross? And the promise in the scripture is, if you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you need to believe that if you haven't done that already. A Puritan named uh, Thomas Wilcox says this, never for a moment dare to take the judge's place by proclaiming irreparable guilt when he proclaims hope, grace, and pardon. If we think our sin is too great to be pardoned, remember, Christ doesn't agree. <laughs> this is another thing that Satan will do. He'll tell you, your sin is too great to be pardoned. No one's done anything like that. Your friends don't even know. What would they think if they knew what you did? That is so severe, that is so egregious. That's so unusual. Yeah, you hear about being forgiven of other sins, but your sin is different. That's what Satan wants you to believe. Wilcox reminds us, no sin is too great to be pardoned. 
And anybody who tells you that is something that Christ does not agree with. So that's what Satan does. That's what he's out to do. He wants you to feel guilty. But what does God do in the midst of this? He, he, he steps into this. What does God do about this situation? I mean, if it's true that we are clothed in these filthy garments like Joshua is, and, and by the way, that's something that we should acknowledge. It's not just Joshua clothed in filthy garments. That's all of us. All of us standing before God are clothed in filthy garments. So on what basis then can God forgive us? And we're told the answer to that in this vision, and we see that it is not something that we do. It's something that God does. Joshua does not respond to the accusation because he has nothing to say, but God does have something to say on behalf of his servant Joshua and on behalf of you and me as well. So what does God do? First thing, he chooses. He chooses. Read verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? This is a picture of election. We don't see Jerusalem, God's people choosing God. We see God in his sovereignty choosing Jerusalem or plucking them from the fire. They're in a, a, a dangerous, irreparable situation and God in his mercy reaches down as they're burning up and he pulls them out to safety. It's a work of God. It's what God does in his own sovereignty. It's what God does by his own initiative. And this is a rebuke that God, God, God is on Satan. It's like God is saying to Satan, who are you? By what authority can you, Satan, accuse these people of sin? These are my people. These are the ones that I have chosen. These are the ones that I have committed myself to. Long before they were ever born, before the foundation of the world, I made them my own. And you have no authority whatsoever, Satan, to try to take them from me. They belong to me. Romans chapter 8 describes it like this. Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. The ones that God has elected and chosen belong to him. It is God who justifies, and Satan has no business seeking to remove that privileged position from God's people. So God chooses, first of all. Secondly, God cleanses. We see this in verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him. The angel, remember, I equated the angel with a divine figure. I think this is God speaking, saying to those who were standing <coughs> before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Take them off this man. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away. So this is cleansing, this is forgiveness, this is the work of God to take away our sin, to remove it as far as the east is from the west. Remember, is Joshua guilty? Yes, he is. This is not excusing his guilt. This is not saying, yeah, he's guilty, but it's no big deal. No, he's guilty. He's a sinner. He is rightfully under the condemnation of God, but God in his mercy comes and removes that guilt and takes away those filthy garments because as the scriptures tell us, God is full of steadfast love and faithfulness and he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That's what he does. And so in his mercy, he cleanses, he forgives, he re 
removes these filthy garments. And then the third thing that we see is that he clothes. He clothes Joshua. Look at the end of verse 4. Very end. He has taken your iniquity away from you. And then adds this. And I will clothe you now with pure vestments. This is something we often lose sight of. I think many people have an impoverished understanding of the gospel because they believe the first two of these, but they don't know about or don't believe the third part of this. They they might believe that God has chosen them and they believe maybe that God has forgiven them, but now they feel like they're standing naked before God. Forgiveness is a great thing, but there's more to the gospel than that. It's not just that God is forgiven, it's that he provides what we need. He clothes us with what are called pure vestments here. These are clothes that are not dirty, they're pure. And in verse 5 he goes on and he puts a clean turban on his head. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 there's a description given for how the high priest should dress. And one of the things he's supposed to do is wear a turban. And so that's what this is referring to. But it's saying that this is, it's a pure turban. A clean turban. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments, put clothes on him. Not just taking away his sin, but putting these clothes on him. This is a beautiful picture of all that God does to remove our guilt. It's not just that we're forgiven, it's that we're regarded as holy and righteous and beautiful in God's sight. It's what we see throughout the New Testament in many places, for instance, in the Gospels. You know the story about the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son wanders away from his family. He goes off and he squanders his living in sin. And then he comes to his senses and he realizes that he has sinned. And he says to himself, I'm going to go back home and hope that my father receives me in mercy. In other words, he repents. And he turns around and he goes back to his home and his father comes running out. The father's watching for him and as he sees his son coming home he starts running after him and he hugs him and he kisses him and he says welcome home. He's met with mercy and grace and then the father says this go and get the best robe we have and put it on my son. Wrap him up in the best robe. I mean the best robe. Not, not a hooded sweatshirt you know, or a t-shirt or a windbreaker, go get the best robe in the house, the best, the best garment, the best, most beautiful piece of clothing we have in our house, and put it on my son. For he was lost, and now he's found. How about uh, the parable of the wedding feast? We see a similar picture of this. In Matthew 22, Jesus is talking about a king who's throwing a wedding for his son. And he's inviting people to come. And a lot of people, they don't have time. They're too busy, so they don't respond. And so they go out into the streets, and they bring in all these different kinds of people into the wedding feast. And then the king notices that there's one guy standing over here at the wedding, and he doesn't have the wedding garments on. And the king says, who's that? And the guy is speechless. He has nothing to say. And the king says, get him out of here. Cast him into darkness. He doesn't have the proper attire on. He's not dressed in the right clothes. He doesn't have the right garments on. So what we see here is that it is of essential importance when we think of our relationship with God and how we're going to stand before him that we be dressed in the right clothes. You know, sometimes you're invited to a a party or a, a dinner and maybe you're not really sure how to dress. 
So you might ask some friends. You might say, what, what are you going to wear? Because you want to know what to wear. You don't want to look out of step. You want to honor the occasion. So you want to dress rightly. So you ask, what, what are you going to wear? And this is my question to you. When you stand before God on Judgment Day, what are you going to wear? What clothes are you going to be wearing? Are you going to be wearing the clothes of your filthy garments? Are you going to present to God all the things that you've done in your life? Are you going to present to God all of your attempts to be a good person? Is that what you're going to try to persuade God about? Your clothes? It won't work. Looking back at the book of Isaiah, we, we see Isaiah talks about this. Here's what 64 6 says We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Do you notice what that's saying? Our righteous deeds. It doesn't say our unrighteous deeds, our righteous deeds, even in the eyes of God, are like a polluted garment because they're stained with our unbelief and our self centered motives. But Isaiah also says, in chapter 61, verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. That's, that's, that's the gospel, and that's what you need. You need the robe of righteousness. So that leads to the last point here. What should you do then in response to this? What should you do? How do you get these clothes? How do you get the garments of salvation? Well, when we get to the New Testament, we find what this is talking about. This garment of salvation turns out to be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteous life. All that Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection are clothes, garments that you need to wear and that you can have if you receive them by faith. Romans 4, to the one who does not work or rely on his own garments, we might say, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That is, the righteousness of Christ comes to him through faith, through simple belief. Similarly, in the book of Philippians, it says this. Paul talks about not having a righteousness of my own, not my own filthy garments, not my own clothes that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in what clothes are you intending to stand before God? The, the clothes of Jesus' righteousness can be yours if you will turn from your sin and receive them by faith. And once you do that then, now the task is to forget what lies behind and to move forward to what lies behind, to leave your guilt and your shame behind and to move forward, to not let your guilt discourage you from service. And so notice how this passage continues because Zechariah goes on in this vision and we see what the Lord says to Joshua. Verse six, the angel of the Lord assured Joshua. Verse seven, he says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you, Joshua, will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So what does this mean? I think what he's saying here is this. Joshua, if you obey me, if you walk in my ways, if you submit to my lordship, then I will restore your ministry. I will restore your leadership among God's people. That's what 
it means when he says to rule my house, have charge of my courts. That's reference to the temple and Joshua's work in, in the temple. He would have been disqualified by his filthy garments, but his ministry is restored if he will walk in God's ways. And not only that, he will, according to verse 7, he will have access among those who are standing here. And I think what that means is those who are standing here would be all of the um, spiritual, celestial, angelic beings that are surrounding the throne of God at the time. And what God is saying is, Joshua, if you walk in my ways, you're going to have access to this. That is, you're going to behold and know more profound spiritual realities as you walk in my ways. This is my promise to you, Joshua. Now, now be very clear here. Notice, this is not saying, Zechariah is not saying, walk in my ways, Joshua, and then I'll remove your iniquity. He's not saying that. He's saying, I already removed your iniquity, so now walk in my ways. Very important to keep that in mind. This is not Joshua earning a removal of his iniquity by walking in his ways. It's a response to what God has done in removing his iniquity. But now... Now that that iniquity has been removed and he's been clothed in the garments of salvation, Joshua has a responsibility, and so do you and me as Christians who are clothed in the garments of salvation. We have a responsibility now to serve, to obey, to take charge of our courts. I, I think sometimes Christians are slow to serve in the church, maybe slow to get involved uh, because of guilt, because they're still carrying guilt with them from, from years ago and they feel unworthy. They feel like I'm not as good as these other Christians. I don't have anything to offer. So I'm not going to get into a life group. I'm not going to serve on a ministry team. I'm not even going to go on Sunday morning very often because I just don't feel worthy. This passage is an encouragement. to Joshua used to be in filthy garments, but those have been taken away. And now God says, walk in my ways and take charge of my courts. Serve. Obey in response to God's grace. Don't let guilt keep you from getting involved. R.C. Sproul would tell a story of how he said people would come to me very often and they would say, they'd say, um, I've asked for forgiveness, but I still feel guilty. What should I do? And Sproul would say, well, well here's what you should do. You should ask for forgiveness again, but not for that thing that you were asking for forgiveness in the past. Now you need to ask for forgiveness for not believing in God's pardon. You need to ask for forgiveness because you're doubting what God has said in his word, that your filthy garments have been removed and your iniquity taken away and you are righteous through faith in Christ. Believe that and sure you're unworthy to serve in the church, but all of us are unworthy. Every one of us, including your pastors and your elders and your deacons. All of us are unworthy. But our iniquity has been taken away and God calls us now to walk in his ways. Well, the chapter then concludes um, with some messianic promises and at the end here things get even a little more strange. Uh, some odd language here. There's uh, in verse 8 a reference to uh, this promise. I will bring my servant. Well, servant happens to be the most commonly used word in the Old Testament for the Messiah. And Jesus says, I have come not to be served but to serve. My servant the branch, it says, also in the Old Testament, that word branch used very often to refer to the Messiah. What, what could that possibly mean? The idea here is if you think of a branch on a tree, 
But the idea here is the tree of the family of David. There was a promise to David that one of his descendants would inherit a throne forever and ever. A king would come. That's what this branch means. It's a branch from the family tree of David. And Jesus comes onto the scene. And what is he called? The son of David. The king of kings. And lastly, we get this reference to a stone in verse 9. On this stone I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes. Um, so you get some of this kind of revelation kind of imagery here, but I think this stone, again, I think it's referring to Jesus. Jesus is often referred to as the stone that was rejected by men, Acts chapter 4. He was rejected when he was put on the cross, but he is now the cornerstone of all God's people through his resurrection. Jesus is the living stone for you and for me. There's seven eyes here referenced. Seven is a symbol of fullness. So it probably means something like uh, one who knows all things. With his eyes he sees and knows all things. Another reference to a divine figure. And so all of these things are, I think, pointing to our, our Savior, Jesus, who came 500 years after this was written. There's one last thing here, very wonderful, about our Savior um, at the end of verse 9, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Now you think about the work of the high priest, Joshua the high priest. The, the, the high priest would have to go into the temple and offer up sacrifices every day, over and over again. Day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month after month, year after year after year. Those high priests in their offering sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sins of the people, to remove the guilt of the people. And now here comes this high priest named Jesus. And on one day, he removes all iniquity of all who will trust in him. That one day when he went to the cross and gave up his life and shed his blood and was raised from the dead, that one event is enough to do what the high priests had been doing for centuries in Old Testament Israel, fully accomplished through the work of our great high priest, who no longer needs to stand, as we see repeatedly through this passage, but sat down because his work is finished, and that work is sufficient to remove all of your guilt and all of your shame if you will look to him and rest in this gospel. God, we thank you that you are merciful to us. Lord, we, we do confess we are in our own selves clothed in filthy garments, but thank you for the robe of righteousness given to us through Jesus and by faith. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.